0: The 1920s and 1950s. Day by day. These were the days of the radio, the golden era of the gramophone. That Sunday morning, vintage chart toppers. 8:30 on RTHK Radio Three. Good morning, this is Radio 3. Now, here's Mind Matters with Carol Mann. Good morning and Happy New Year. Welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Mann. Today, we'll talk about the first Chinese-owned and operated insurance company in Hong Kong, the On Thai Insurance Company. Even as the first to be incorporated as a limited joint stock company under the company ordinance, it is unknown to historians today. Professor Elizabeth Sin from Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences at HKU will tell us how important the business was for Chinese capital formation and activities in Hong Kong in the 19th century. She was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "Forgotten Pioneer: The On Tai Insurance Company Limited of Hong Kong, 1877 to 1900."
1: The two people that I will be talking about, uh, Leasing and Ho Wan Mei. Leasing owned the company; was one of the big owners of the company, and Ho Wan Mei, who operated the company, were two of the movers and shakers who owned uh, in Hong Kong, and yet. Uh, we don't talk a lot about them um, in in these terms. And I think mean, one of the problems is Westerners tend to stress the role of compradors, and neither Li nor Hoame or the comprador, right? And so by looking at the work of these two people, perhaps we can reassess the role of non-comprador Chinese businessmen uh, in Hong Kong and in China too. I'm writing about the Ontai insurance company, As a chapter of my book, which is the biography of this man, Hoa Mei, who I consider one of the most dynamic and controversial characters in 19th century Hong Kong. Among other things, he managed on for over 20 years, and I soon discovered that the company was really important, but sadly overlooked by historians. So at first, I was just writing a chapter in Hoa Mei's, in this book on Hoa Mei, but this chapter became Quite fascinating to me. I was just gonna write about this insurance company, and suddenly this insurance company became a lot more important than I had believed at the beginning. So I'm gonna talk about this company, but before I do so, I'm gonna say a little bit about the history of insurance in China. At first it was um mainly operated by foreign companies. It was hard for other foreign traders to get their ships or get their goods insured. So they no longer tried not to depend on London and set up their own um, insurance companies or insurance groups in the China region. In 1805, Dent and Jardine Madison, these are the two big traders uh, in, in Guang, Guangzhou, started the Canton Insurance Society. And it was mainly a sort of group, it's an ad hoc group, it was not a company, just pooling shipping risks of the companies um, to cover each other. And in 1835, Dent left the, the partnership and set up another company, the Union Insurance Company, and in Macau, Hong Kong was not, uh, had not become an international port yet. And in 1836, um, Jardine formed the Canton Insurance Company, which then moved to Hong Kong in 1842. In 1862, the Russell and Company founded the Yangtze Insurance Company. And um, in conjunction with its uh, Shanghai Steam Navigation Company. So slowly, the foreign companies were setting up insurance companies right here in China, rather than depend on the insurance companies in London or even in India. And, um, in 1871, the Chinese insurance company was set up in Hong Kong. And what is interesting about this company was that it had many Chinese investors who were very keen to invest in insurance companies. And, um, it was stipulated in their constitution that every, that there should at least be two Chinese directors uh, on the board, but the company was not run by Chinese. All right. And nominally it was not a Chinese owned company. Despite the setting up of these foreign insurance companies in China, the Chinese ship owners and uh, traders had a disadvantage because their properties were not insured. In other words, the foreign companies would not insure their properties. And if they did, they would only insure ships and not the cargo, and the uh, premium was very high. So you can see that the um, Chinese ship owners and Traders were at a great disadvantage because they couldn't really compete with their foreign counterparts on the same terms. Now, in 1865, the Chinese did not have insurance companies, I have to say this, right? And they did not, um, they had their own ways of insuring um, their properties, which was actually not easy to use. And for small companies, it was very difficult to have any kind of... Insurance, insurance in the sense of the old insurance system, right? Those insurance practices. In 1865, in Shanghai, the first Chinese insurance company was founded. It was very small. Uh, it was actually the subsidiary of a, a bigger company and it only insured cargo and not entire vessels. But there was one breakthrough. The forms were printed in English and Chinese. All right. And for Chinese um, users of Chinese customers, this was really, really uh, very important. And so the, for the first time, they knew exactly what the terms and the conditions of their contracts were, what the risks were. All right. So the language has always been a very big issue. In 1875, the Chinese merchant steam navigation company, the uh, Zhaochangqiu, established its own insurance company called the Yan Wu Insurance Company also became very important. At first, the uh, Zhao Shangju's uh, insurance company only insured its own ships. Uh, and because of the great demand, everybody else wanted the Zhao Shangju to insure them. So um, its services extended to um, other traders and ships as well. And what was very obvious was that the market was there. The, the market was hungry for insurance services. And so this is where the Ontai Insurance Company comes in. The Ontai was established, the Prospective came out in 1876, and it was actually incorporated in 77. And in the prospectus, it says that its aim was to provide risk protection to Chinese ship owners and cargo owners rejected by Western insurance companies, which means that you can't get insured by the Western insurance companies, come to us. And to capitalize on a profitable market and to see see the success of the Yen War, the insatiable market despite Yen War's establishment, lots of opportunities were still there to be exploited. The next one is important. Prevent business profits from being scattered abroad that is reaped by foreign companies. The foreign companies come in, they take money, they make money, and they take them away back to their home countries. And so the Antai said, well, we're going to stop this. We're going to make sure that we make profit in China and the profits stay in China. And the insurance opens another front for Chinese businesses to compete with foreign businesses. The rhetoric of defending Chinese commercial interest was part of the self-strengthening ideology of the time. And those of you who have looked at companies' um, will know that very often there was a lot of platitudes, right? Some of them were genuine and some of them were just sort of uh, fluff. Anyway, but it, it is true that the on-time became very much part of the self-strengthening movement in terms of competing with uh, foreign company interests. And this is a notice of the on insurance company in the newspapers. Uh, it shows you the amount of capital, who the directors were, and the manager, who I made, uh, and what kind of services it offered, and where its head office was, and so forth, right? So its uh, initial capital was 400,000 tails, which is what's equivalent to about uh, $55,000. But two years later, it increased its capital to uh, 600,000 tails. So it um, was very popular in- to the investors, and it shows you who the directors were, both in Chinese and in English. All right, And they were leasing, you should remember that, and they were all the leading businessmen in Hong Kong. And the share prices of the time was also listed uh in these market uh, intelligence, in the newspapers. So it was uh, a known company then operating along with the other foreign insurance companies on different levels. The Ontai was the first Chinese-owned company to be incorporated under the company's ordinance of 1865. Now, this ordinance had been transplanted from England primarily to protect British companies' interest and also to encourage foreign companies, particularly British companies, to set up companies in China so that the company's ordinance was to protect their capital, uh, if they set up companies in China. This, um, it governed the distribution of capital and the liability of members of the companies and governments. That is, it made it very clear who were the, who were responsible for debts, right? And to what extent they were responsible for debts. All shareholders had to be registered with the register of companies for transparency. Now, this is very important because up to this point, Many companies were set, were set up as partnerships. And it was easy for some of the partnerships, some of the companies to list as partners, people who really were not the owners in the sense that they really didn't have money, but they was, they were the front people. All right. So if there was any trouble there, the real owners would run away and these guys were left holding the can. All right. Now with the company's ordinance, it made it much more, um, specific that owners had to, the shareholders had to register and they identify, identities would be made clear to everybody, right? And because it was a limited company, the statements of profit and loss, asset and liability etc., had to be published and they all had to be edited, audited, ins- the, the books had to be inspected by government inspectors and so on to provide a lot of safeguards for investors for customers, and for creditors. And so this safeguard against fraud is really important. And I would re- refer you to Michael Lee's article on bankruptcy law and partnerships, where he shows how fraud could be uh, committed by a lot of companies that were not registered. Actually, his, his accent was not, his emphasis was not on partnerships or non-partnerships. His accent was on bankruptcy. All right. Um, not on whether the company was incorporated or not. But it was a, it's an excellent, um, article showing the, um, the balance between legislation and ethics, right? And whether a company or in the old days, companies observed ethical standards. And in fact, the introduction of something like the bankruptcy law, uh, could destabilize that kind of, uh, ethical standard. Um, and the company ordinance ordinance also uh, regulated the processes of winding up and in fact almost huge uh, many many pages of the ordinance covered the cross the proceedings of winding up and this is very important because it means that people can not just run away and also it was important because in 1899 the anti was actually, liquidated. All right. And so this was um, kind of a sad ending, but you can see how the be, being incorporated under the company's ordinance um, kind of framed Ontai's um, existence. Uh, the reaction to. So this is how Ontai was set up uh, by incorporated under the company's ordinance. The company showed that it was ready to subject itself to legal constraints and work to the new standard of commercial practice was reassuring to investors, customers, and creditors. And of course, by being a limited company, it gave the company a lot of status too. Now, what was the reaction to um, Ontai when it was set up? It was the first Chinese owned and operated uh, insurance company in Hong Kong, there was a lot of stir. Uh, some of its competitors, like the Chinese insurance company, um, founded, you know, run by events admitted that the establishment of Ontai was a challenge to its own business. And uh, it used the Ontai's uh, establishment to explain why it didn't do that well in 1878, the year after Ontai was established. In Aberdeen, in Scotland, Uh, The newspapers also picked up that Anta was established. And its reaction was, was, oh, well, these Chinese people, if there's money to be made, the Chinese would catch on sooner or later. Even though they didn't have insurance business before, um, if they knew that insurance business was profitable, they would come in and, and take it on as well.
0: You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Elizabeth Sin from the University of Hong Kong telling us the history of Ontai Insurance Company and how it became the pioneer in the business industry. She will continue to discuss the importance of the firm to the Chinese business landscape. I'm going to introduce
1: two people at this point. One is Lee Sing, who was the real the money man behind the insurance company. He, well, he's a long story, but he operated a number of businesses uh, in shipping, in labor recruitment, in import export, in opium, insurance, remittance, and foreign currency. right so he was a really big businessman. And as I said, he was not a competitor. And in Hong Kong, he had a number of uh, companies, the uh, wohang and the Lai Hang and On Time Insurance. And in San Francisco, he also had a number of branches and um and associate companies. So he had this big business empire. He was in trading the South World trade, which is along the China coast in Southeast Asia, and also the California trade, that is the cross-Pacific trade between Hong Kong and California. So he was involved in many, many types of businesses involving very wide geographical scope. So he was the money man. And he was actually very entrepreneurial, very pioneering, ready to try new things. The other man that I would like to talk about is Paul Mei and I'm writing his biography. Uh, Paul Mei came to Hong Kong in uh, the 1850s, maybe, uh, to, and he studied English under James Lake. and his English became very fluent. He went to Australia, engaged in small businesses, at, th- at that time, the Chinese were also going to help into Australia for the gold. And he acted as interpreter in court. And he showed at that early date, in his mid-20s, that he was a fighter for justice. And he, in the courts as interpreter, he was very often taking the side of the Chinese miners who were the defendants, or the Chinese who were the defendants, and they were quite helpless against the English-speaking court. And so Hoa May very often in interpreting for them, were also kind of taking their sides to the extent that the prosecutor um, told him that, um, hey, you're just the interpreter, you're not the defense lawyer, right? So he had this natural instinct um, fighting for justice and it's not just a front and we'll see that through his life this instinct was um, this compulsion to to fight for justice uh, was reflected. While he was in Australia he was the first Chinese uh, to introduce Chinese miners to New Zealand where gold was also discovered. He married a white Australian woman. He returned to Hong Kong uh, and worked around Hong Kong Guangzhou area in the customs First for the government and also for the customs services. And before he came to Hong came back to Hong Kong in eighteen seventy-seven as the manager of the insurance company, uh he was the customs banker in Shantau. Uh what this means was he was responsible for the money transactions of the Maritime Customs Service in Shantou. So that was a very important job that involved finances, accounting, and that would give him expose him to uh, foreign shipping and insurance and so forth. So that really prepared him very well for his job as secretary for the um, Ontai Insurance Company. And um, he didn't just stop at uh, the Ontai, Um As a member of the Ontai Insurance Company, his social status, his social status was greatly um, enhanced. Um, he became the first Chinese to join the General Chamber of Commerce, which had, up to this point, been dominated by Western Western companies and Western businessmen. And at this Chamber of Commerce, uh, he used it as a platform to express his own opinions, uh, which were very often pro-China opinions. And he was often defending um, Chinese policies. Uh, he became the chairman of the Dunghua Hospital in 1982, which was a great uh, honor. Uh, actually, Li Sing was one of the founders of the Duma Hospital, which was organized by the Chinese business elite in Hong Kong. It became a kind of roll call for uh, the Chinese uh, merchant elite. So, by becoming the chairman of the Duma Hospital, Huawei Ho was recognized as a community leader, uh, and he continued to fight for the interest and the rights of the Hong Kong Chinese community. He was also the first person later to call. The um, Chinese Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. He promoted the repealing of the night pass system. Um, from about the 1850s onwards, Chinese were uh, compelled to carry a a night pass if they wanted to go out at night, from say nine to six o'clock in the morning, and they could only get a night pass night pass from the police station, right? So, um, so for Chinese, it was both very inconvenient and very humiliating. And of course, when the Chinese merchants became more powerful, they felt very humiliated, even when they were big businessmen, to have to carry these night passes uh, when they went out at night. And so, later in the, in 1896, Kouamé stood up and said, "Well, you got so the government, you've got to repeal this law," and it was repealed. And it would, it was a very big, very dramatic event when he um, spoke up for the Chinese community. But not only was he very active in Hong Kong, he was also very active in his connections with the Guangzhou authorities and the Chinese authorities. And during the uh, French... Chinese War from 1884 to 1886. He was in Hong Kong informing Zhang Jidong of all the French movements. Every day, he was almost almost every day, he would send telegrams to Zhang Jidong telling him about the movements of French ships coming into Hong Kong, how many men they carried, how many guns were on board, how much provision was being brought into Hong Kong, how much provision was being brought into Hong Kong for the military in Vietnam and so forth. So he was. Um, it was very closely connected with the Guangdong uh, authorities. And he also used his position as the manager of the, insur- of, of, of the insurance company and also as the chairman of Zhonghua Hospital to mobilize Chinese around the world whenever there was um, any donation that was needed in China for relief of famine relief or drug relief or, uh, flood relief, right? So he used his network to raise money from the Chinese, move the money back to transfer the money, transmitted the money remitted the money back to Hong Kong, to the insurance company. And then send it back to China. And because of all this good work he did for China and because he had money, he was able to buy for himself an honorary title as a uh, assistant magistrate. But more importantly, he also bought on honors for his deceased parents. And so they were, they were known by their official titles, but also he was able to get the right to build these archways in his hometown, home village in Nanhai, in commemoration of his parents, all right, and this was really bringing honor to the family, all right. This Guangzhong Guangzhong Yao agenda that many Chinese uh, men hopes in the 19th century. So he was a mover and mover and shaker who worked to the community, who worked for Chinese interests, but also worked for his own interests as well, and. Uh, Coming back to his business um interest, Hoame and Lee Singh was a very formidable combo. All right, Lee Sing with the money, with the vision, and OMA with the skills, with the management skills, with the operational skills, with his uh, networking skills. Um, apart from the on-time insurance, the two of them also went into other businesses. Um actually one of the very interesting proposals they made was to set up a an opium monopoly in Hong Kong to buy up all the opium in India that was to be imported into China, which meant that all the opium that from India that would be imported into China would first come to Hong Kong, pay their, um, duties and all the taxes that would be, would be necessary once they got to China, so that the tax collection became very, very simple and convenient, which was something that collecting tax, taxes from all kinds of imports, particularly opium had been a big headache for the Chinese government. So, this proposal for an opium monopoly set up in hong kong not only would bring profit to the syndicate concerned but would also assist the chinese government in the collection of um import duties and even the Jin, which was um, an inland uh, uh tariff um These two guys also formed the Wahab Canton Hong Kong Telegraph Company. The idea was to build a telegraph line from Guangzhou to Hong Kong. And once they got to Hong Kong, Hong Kong was the terminus of different uh, lines uh, that connected Hong Kong with the overseas. All right. So the Guangzhou Hong Kong line would be a very crucial line. They started building the line, but Once the light got to the border, that is the border between Chinese territory and British territory. Now we, now we have to remember this was the 1880s. So the, uh, Kowloon Peninsula uh, boundary came up only to Boundary Street, All right, So south of Boundary Street was British uh, possession and north of Boundary Street was still Chinese territory. So they they built the line up to near the boundary, actually near Mei in Dauwakeng. And the British says, uh, no, you can't come any further because what the British wanted was to keep the the, China, the Hong Kong line, the line within Hong Kong from the boundary street to uh, Hong Kong to a British company, all right? So that is another very interesting story. And um and the next big thing that mei and Li Sing got into was the silver mine in Silver Mine Bay. And the mine that they operated um is right there in Silver Mine Bay. And I think it, it was the silver mine that gave the name to Silver Mine Bay. And the, there are all kinds of other business enterprises that were being proposed to the chinese government as well which i won't have time to go into but uh let me just um say a little bit more about the anti uh, in action. the anti had a huge geographical span uh of of, of services it ensured in terms of the size of the of the function it ensured both ships and cargo right uh and i should emphasize that that was a very clear division between insurance for ships and insurance for carbon. And then there were large and small policies. Now, this is a map that shows the agents, of uh, anti-agents around the world. So from Bombay, um, Southeast Asia, Australia, uh, China, Japan, Circalian right at uh, the north, uh, Hawaii, California, and the one in the south there is um, Palau in uh, Peru. So it's huge expense of operations. It insured both big and small, small carbons, all right? And this is a very small policy. This is for premium payment on $470 worth of goods. And the rate was $1 per hundred. All right, so it's 1% premium. It's very, very low, actually. So the premium was 470 uh, And so you can imagine that foreign firms would not take such uh, small policies. So it was offering service at a very uh low level, but a very necessary level because a lot of the trade between, say, Hong Kong and Guangzhou or Hong Kong and, and Vietnam were very small quantities, but lots and lots of very small quantities. And they were also big policies too. So we look at these um unfortunately we don't get to know about its operations uh except for except when there were disasters and then it was reported what the loss was, right? All the information that I could get uh on the ONTAI on um, the policies that it had granted or issued, uh, had to come from these, uh, uh, shipwreck reports. So one of them was, uh, the Bombay in 1888. It was going, the ship itself was going from, to, uh, from Shanghai to Shantou. And the Antai had a line of $40,000 on the ship and, uh, $800 on cargo. And it was a total loss. It just burned, um, in, in near Shanghai. And the next one was a Delta. The... The boat was going the ship was going from Haiphong to Hong Kong and it to um wrecked. And the um Antai had um had insured thirty six thousand dollars of the cargo, which is mainly I think right. rice. Then the third one was the that I have is the Kalima the um, ship was going from San Francisco to to Panama so it was going south from San Francisco and it raked up Mexico coast with very large loss of cargo uh, only very few passengers actually survived um I don't know the exact uh amount that um anti <clears throat> had uh insured but it, it's probably over ten thousand dollars right um but even if when even when I don't know the um The actual amount that, that ONTAI had, had issued. But what is important is to understand that geographical span. All right. This was not just California to China, but California down to, down to Mexico and Panama, which meant that ONTAI must have business there and they must have an agent there to take care of this business. And San Francisco was extremely important to on to Hong Kong. You as I said, had a lot of business in California. Ever since the gold rush in 1848, after that, a lot of Chinese went to California for the gold mountain. And they set up, apart from being miners and building railroads, they also set up businesses there and became a very big market for goods, both for export to China and for import from China. And um so it was quite natural for the Li um, Singh who had a big business in the, this California trade business, to um, also set up agents in set up agents in um, California as well, and ensure a lot of goods on the California trade. As a foreign company operating in California, it was it was obligated to it was obliged to issue its statement of condition and affairs. Now, which is ironical because in Hong Kong, because it was a registered company in Hong Kong, it was supposed to issue this. Uh, in Hong Kong, but I've not been able to find find this anywhere in Hong Kong.
0: That was Professor Elizabeth Sin from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. Live
1: across
0: Hong Kong, this is Radio 3.